Welcome to another edition of the Strategist Corner Podcast. I'm Rob Almeida, MFS's Global Investment Strategist and Multi-Asset Portfolio Manager. In this episode, I chat with Kim Hyland, head of MFS's Global Institutional Relationship Management Team. We discuss trends and common concerns she's hearing from clients across the global institutional market and how we as investors think about some of those risks. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Kim Hyland, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rob. It's good to be here. So as head of global institutional client relationship, uh, before we get into that, talk a little bit about before you came to MFS, because to me, what's interesting is, and I'm maybe leading the witness here, but you worked on the sell side in a different perspective. So talk a little bit about your career coming to MFS. Okay. So I was on the sell side for 10 years. Okay doing institutional equity sales. So talking to investors like people here at MFS on the global research platform and then came to the buy side um, and have been at MFS for 15 years. So I do consider myself a bit of a newbie uh, in MFS (laughs) terms. (laughs) So talking to institutional clients for two and a half decades, but more to the present day, what are clients, there's a lot of concerns, but what are their largest concerns? Okay. Well, I think first of all, I would say this is one of the most interesting times that we've seen in the markets and to be investing through this time. And I think a lot of clients and a lot of investors on our side of the table um, recognize that the next few decades are going to be very different than the last few decades. And I think 2022 was really that inflection point Mm -hmm. Um, and an interesting inflection point because you saw it was the first year in 40 years where both equities and bonds, as we all know, were down. Yeah. So that was unsettling. But I think there are sort of, I would say, four main issues, I think, that institutional investors think about right now. Uh, One, a big one is liquidity. So, you know, addressing liquidity needs with lower total values is a big deal. I think the most public display of that last year was with the UK pension crisis, but they certainly weren't alone in that regard. So, so liquidity is the first one. And then the second one, probably not surprising to you, is the role of fixed income. Yeah. And, you know, riskless assets like treasuries are now a competitive asset class. So what's the role of fixed income in your overall portfolio? And again, that's going to be different in the next probably few decades as it was in the last few decades. Right. And then the third one is managing the over allocations to private markets. Right. And I think private markets play a critical role in portfolios. But I think it's time, given what's gone on in the markets, it's time to reassess and remember what's the premium that you're going to pay for that yeah. Illiquidity. Um, How much of that do you think is a valuation concern or a liquidity concern or, or, it's, or it's just both? I think it's both. Yeah. And I think, you know, also looking at bonds, a riskless asset yielding right. four to five percent. Yeah. That's kind of competitive across the board. Yeah. And when you think about what public assets did in 2022 and every institutional client is different. And but I haven't seen the type of 2022 marks in private assets. Maybe that's part of the concern too, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. And we haven't seen a lot of the rate downs yet. So right. Right. it will be interesting going forward. Yeah. 
And then the last part, and I'm biased here, I work for MFS, I believe <laughs> in active management is the role of active management in your portfolio going forward. And yeah. if we are in a much more muted return environment, yeah. um, which all things are kind of pointing in that direction, then alpha becomes a much more critical component of your overall total return and enabling you to meet your goals. So selectivity is key. So your regional allocation, your sector selection, your style selection, yeah. security selection, and manager selection are all different ways to generate alpha in your portfolio. So the role of active management could be very different. And I think it's something that institutional clients are looking at. Well, and that makes intuitive sense to me. I mean, just from a mathematical valuation standpoint, you know, rates going from five to zero over the last 10 years, or really just from 15 to zero over the last 25 years, you're going to get uh, less dispersion and less um, relevance from regions, sectors, et cetera, because everything inflates when that happens. Yep, yep. And then 2022 brought a shock to that, right? So rates went from zero to three, four, five, depending upon where you live, then everything devalued, stocks, bonds, yep geography, sector, it didn't matter. It all got devalued because like you said, cash became a competitive asset. So what you said makes sense. So that raised liquidity concerns because now maybe you have more illiquid assets than, than you thought and that brought up that liquidity issue. And maybe now you're not getting paid for it like you were yeah. you know, four or five, six years ago. And then just the shift in rates up and they don't have to keep going up but just at these levels now, you're going to get asset impairment. You're going to get more volatility, and that's going to bring increased value to sector allocation, security selection, all those things that you mentioned. Yeah, a whole new paradigm. Out yeah, there. yeah, that makes sense to me, and and that is consistent with what I'm seeing and hearing. So I don't talk to nearly as many clients as, as you do, but I've been doing this about the same time as you have, and in my career. You know, across geography, across investor type, retail, institutional, there was always a commonality, right? Because they're all, all smart people, but with different mandates, right? You may, might be managing a 30-year time horizon. Someone else might be managing to a, a five-year yep. horizon, whatever that might be. But the concerns were directionally the same. And then on the tails, they were different. Someone in South America had different concerns than someone in Europe. For the last year, and I think it the causal factor is is rates and what happened in 22, all these client conversations are the same. And they're the same points that you were talking about, right? So how do I think about fixed income? How do I think about my asset allocation mix? Because it, it feels different because it is different. And now we're maybe jumping into what you were referring to of a new paradigm, but things have changed. Yes. And you and I spent a lot of the last 15 years on the road meeting with clients. Yeah. And um, and I think one of the, the values that you bring as the strategist at MFS is that you're an investor on our global research platform. You're interacting with the analysts, PMs um, across the globe, across the capital market structure. So you're building your macro perspective through the lens of the micro on our global research platform. Yeah. So you're you know, building that, seeing everything that's happening from the bottom up to, to build your perspective, which is different from your peers in the industry. Yeah, right. So, um, which I always think is an interesting way to look at it. So given that as the backdrop, yeah. I want to turn, I'm going to play the client okay, with you sure. and say, right. okay, given that as the backdrop, let's talk about the markets. Okay. And from your perspective, you know, it's a tough environment out there. You've got a hot war with Russia. Yeah. 
you have a Cold War with China. Right. You've got the climate emergency or transition going on. So there's a lot that yeah. investors have to grapple with. There's a lot of pressure on costs upward. So I'm going to put you in the tough position and say, what is your crystal ball telling you? And I think yeah. this is one of the things that clients say to us. Hard landing, soft landing, no landing. What should we be yeah. expecting in 2023 and beyond yeah. from your bottom-up viewpoint? The bad news is uh, on the way here, I dropped my crystal ball and it cracked and, <laughs> and broke. So we'll have to um, go with the more simple version. But I, I, I think, though, the emphasis on soft landing, hard landing, because I hear that from clients all the time, too. I hear from you know, media that we, we talk to and... The question makes a ton of sense, and, and I, I, I understand why. I think, though, that part doesn't matter as much as, as people think. I think the pathway for GDP matters at points of extremis, right? So you saw a 10% GDP because of stimulus coming out of COVID, yeah. and in 08, you saw you know, minus 10, 20, 30, depending upon where, where you live. So that's that's when it matters. But if it's 1% GDP or negative 1%, I'm, I'm not sure it matters. So I'm, I'm less worried about that. What I'm more worried about is the years of interest rate manipulation. So pushing rates below their, their natural equilibrium rate. And when that happens, when you do that, malinvestment accrues in the economy. So people make financial decisions based upon distorted signals. And you've seen this throughout history. So I, I think just in, in really, really simple terms, the 40-year move you saw in rates last year changed so many things where now all those, let's call them maybe suboptimal investment decisions, yep. that decision to you know, start a new product line or that decision to uh, open up a, into a new geography or to invest in that SPAC or that crypto, all those, let's call them suboptimal decisions, they get exposed. And so I think the concern, the investor concern to me over the next two, three, four, five, ten 10 years should be centered around the things that we can't see. So what type of bad investments was a company making? What kind of impairment do they have to make on the balance sheet? How much debt did they accrue to make that bad investment decision? And so when I think about where we are now, valuations are high, um, and we can debate that because yeah. um, that's uh, in the eye of the beholder. It depends on what you think earnings will be, what cash flows will be. So we can argue about that. But valuations are uh, above average at the very least. But in addition to that, companies are over-earning cash flows are, are too high. And so I, I think the investor focus should be, and this gets back to your point about security selection, should be, is this asset money good? Stock, bond, public, private, US, non-US. What's going to be the cash flow generative power of the enterprise? And how much am I overpaying for that? Or maybe I'm underpaying for that. And that's where I, th I think the focus should be. So I have less conviction on soft landing, hard landing. And it's it matters, but I'm not sure it's going to matter as much as a company is now refinancing at 8%. Their ROI is 6 They're no longer earning their cost of capital. It doesn't matter recession or not. The companies aren't going to survive. Thinking about different companies on yeah. the investment platform, where we're seeing the sort of risks and opportunities, where we've had this backdrop of declining rates, a lot of fiscal stimulus, 
in the more recent past, quantitative easing. Um, it's put the world awash in easy money. And it's created a wonderful beta environment where a rising tide has yeah. lifted all boats. I might be stretching it, but all companies were able to get capital all the time. Oh, yeah. And I think those days are over. So when you look across our platform, how does this impact individual companies? Yeah. Where are we seeing the risks and opportunities? I'm guessing where there's going to be a lot of companies that are going to have to start to roll over their debt. Right. Pretty soon, and that's going to change the composition for them and their what their balance sheet looks like. In aggregate, you had a ton of corporate debt issuance over the last 10 years just because of interest rates were so low. And that capital was intended, or central banks hoped that that capital would be funded into projects, plants property, equipment, fixed assets to create economic growth, to create jobs, to create money velocity. And that didn't happen, right? So you had the greatest profit cycle, at least in the United States history, and what was the weakest economic growth cycle in 150 we years. We produced nothing. We produced <laughs> nothing. So what, what, what happened was instead of capital being put into production, it went into financial gearing. So you just lever it up existing income streams. And that's why profits are so high. And that's why the equity market responded so well. And that's over now, right? So with interest rates at 4%, you go from quantitative easing to quantitative tapering or quantitative tightening. That changes that dynamic. So I think what you start to see, and I don't know if it's quickly or slowly, but the companies that are unable to earn their cost of capital will get exposed in that type of environment. It, but the second thing it brings is where there was investment, it was into software to drive brand awareness, right? And we went to apps and social media or in marketing and things like that. And I think where we are now, we've outgrown our physical world, right? So we don't have enough uh, green energy assets. Uh, you mentioned earlier, hot war with Russia, cold war with China. So what you're hearing from companies is they're worried about their supply chains and COVID exposed that. How much mother nature risk do they have? How much geopolitical risk do they have? And what that spells, I think, is a massive shift in onshoring, a massive shift from um, increasing dividends and buybacks to gre reducing greenhouse gases, shoring up supply chains. All that requires a tremendous amount of capital. So maybe going back to your earlier question, what I think the world looks like the next five to 10 years, it's really different than the last five or 10 years, is instead of capital being used to arbitrage labor, means of production, financial gearing, it's now being put to productive assets, which makes the world a better place, less greenhouse gas emissions, more labor quality, but that comes at the expense of profit margins. And that's how we have to think about, is that who can earn their cost of capital in that kind of environment and who can't? And to your point where security selection matters, that becomes a big delta. Big so we delta. should see a lot of dispersion in I the think markets. So. Yeah. Like and I, within I, sectors and across. Yeah. And and you know, the market is brilliant. The market will price it before that becomes tangible, right? So as you and I are talking about it now, I don't know if that happens next quarter or maybe it happens in three years. I, I don't know. But as we've seen time and time again, markets discount things before they become tangible, before you can see it. And we have to you have to be ready for that beforehand, which goes back to your opening comments about what your clients are telling you, yep. right? Worried about liquidity. 
I got to ask you about the most recent banking crisis. Sure. Uh, I'd be amiss not to. And I know history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Mm -hmm. And um, do you think this could be sort of the beginning of more trouble in the markets, given how you talked about the leverage and financial gearing that we've seen yeah. over valuations? You could say we've had bubble securities, <laughs> <laughs> bubble asset classes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is just one episode, but it kind of feels like when you go back to the spring, I think it was the spring of 2007, and you had the collapse of those two Bear Stern uh, credit hedge funds. And that was really a sign of what was to come. And so um, could there be more pain to come as we deal with sort of the the excesses in the financial markets right now in the financial system? Yeah. Do we have systemic issues in front of us? Um, but more importantly, sort of how is our investment team thinking about yeah. the bank, the banking crisis and what are they worried about or what opportunities do they see? Yeah, I, I think at its simplest form, business cycles don't die of old age. They die because of accrued malinvestment. Something gets overbought, overproduced, whether it's because of new technology, a war, a change in laws, whatever it is. In the 2000s, too much capital was put into unproductive resources, building too many homes that we didn't need. And that was financed by large Wall Street banks. And so the 08 was a correction of that imbalance. So you had way too many homes that were built done with a tremendous amount of financial leverage. You didn't have that in the 2010s. We actually didn't build enough homes. And the homes that we were building, they weren't used with excessive leverage. So I think in 2008, you had a solvency problem amongst the banks. This is more of a liquidity problem. So I think that's the good news that this is an 08. Um, it's not a systematic housing crisis. I don't think it's a systematic banking crisis. However, on the other side, and, and what you've seen is, you know, we have a fragmented banking system. We have just excess capacity like we do in a lot of other sectors, I think because of the artificial interest rate environment. So you have over 4,000 U.S. banks. And of course, there's going to be some that fly too close to the sun, as you saw. But I don't think that's all of them. I think what you're seeing, this is more of a symptom of the overall environment, but how the team is thinking about it, not different than how you think about other events, is this, how does this change the P&L of the individual business, right? So what are the risks that we can see? What are the risks that we can't see? Think about that in your model. And is the market over discounting something that it shouldn't or under discounting it and just walking through each model. But I think the short answer to your question is, I don't think this is a way. I think we have other problems, but not not an 08 bank crisis. OK, so that's probably a good lead up to artificial intelligence and chat GPT. <laughs> I think we all sort of futz around with it with our kids and yeah. try and learn as much as we can. Um, but just curious how we're thinking about it, yeah. sort of, you know, again, sort of how to play this from an investment perspective. Like, do we think there'll be lots of winners? There'll be lots of companies that, you know, along these lines or yeah. are there going to be just a few that benefit from this whole trend? Yeah. Well, technology is a funny thing. Um, and you mentioned earlier, history do doesn't repeat, uh, but it does rhyme. You've seen that for 200 years in technology is that it disintermediates, it usurps an existing technology. And as you're going up that proverbial S-curve, usually what happens is the early disruptors get disrupted along the way. Somebody else comes in and duplicates what they're doing. They just make it better, right? And that's capitalism. That's, that's efficiencies. So as artificial intelligence grows, it's difficult, if not impossible, 
to understand who's going to be the long-term market share winners. And that's pretty consistent throughout history with, with technology. So instead, we come at it from the other angle. Is that, all right, well, what technology or existing service does artificial intelligence make redundant? So that's really the, the, the risk. So when you think uh, 100 years ago, uh, what made the horse and buggy redundant, right? It was automobiles and what made TV and radio and, and all these things redundant over time. And so I think for the last 20 years, you've had significant developments in technology, specifically software, but nothing nearly as revolutionary as I think what we're seeing now with AI. And so I'm not a scientist, I'm not a coder, but to me in, in simple terms, what this potential new technology allows for is the quick adaption or duplication of coding. So maybe software companies that their economic mode or their value proposition was selling you a, a code or an algorithm and now AI perhaps will be able to do that service for you at a for free or for cheaper cost. So it's thinking about who loses in that future. You know, what's incredible about it is, uh, you know, Moore's law, which basically means, you know, the, the semiconductors double every 18 to 24 months. AI dat data sets are doubling every three months. So this is growing 600% or six times faster than Moore's law. So this is growing super fast. So there are beneficiaries to that. You need data centers, co-location, tons of equipment because the data for AI, it's literally doubling every three months. So it seems to us that, I don't want to use the word clear, but there's pockets at risk that I think we've identified and let's make sure that we don't own that. And then there are areas that are, we call pickaxes and shovels that will service that industry that uh, we have exposure to. That's pr pretty exciting. So I know we've, we've been painting a pretty negative picture of the world these days, but I think um, some of the things that are going on and that's deglobalization and onshoring, very yeah. different than the last 15, 20 years. But there's a lot of opportunity from a bottom-up perspective to play those trends. Yeah. Any thoughts that you can share with us on that front? When you enter a new paradigm or a new cycle, there's usually new market leaders. Coming out of the 1990s, which was uh, technology hardware. In the 2000s, of course, it was financials and commodities. In the 2010s, it was software. Looking out into 2020s, to your point about onshoring and just the increase of making sure supply chains are resilient, but having our own semiconductor capabilities, our own electric vehicle making capabilities, all that sorts of things that requires people, it requires parts, it requires goods, it requires a tremendous amount of capex and opex. And capital goods companies, industrial companies are at the epicenter of that. So that seems to be uh, a potential, let's call it a uh, new paradigm market leader or, or winner. Now, but these were good businesses to begin with, right? These are businesses we've owned for a long time. And maybe this doesn't happen as quickly as we're talking about, and maybe it's more of a, but whether it happens slowly or quickly, this is additive to what were already good businesses to begin with. Okay. All right. And I know we're running up on time. Um, and as we've talked about living through regime change, um, low rates, low inflation, easy access to capital, that's changing into higher rates, higher costs. And so we think the beta environment is changing. Yeah. We're big believers in active <laughs> management. Um, the the S&P 500 was up 7% in the first quarter, yet 
in this backdrop. Um, so sometimes it feels like the markets are thinking one way versus what's going on in the economy. I think, you know, earnings are projected to be up yeah. this year. When do you think we'll start to see some of the earnings degradation and, and subsequently some of the dispersion in the markets? Yeah, that's always hard. It, what's fascinating to me is, you know, aside from equity markets being up, you juxtapose that with what happened in the bond market. So the drop in the two-year treasury, and that was a 10 sigma event. I mean, I don't know if it was exactly 10 skin deviations, but it was something along that line. So the bond market is telling you something very different than certainly what the Fed is telling you or what central banks are telling you, which is something very different than what the equity markets are telling you. So I think there's a lot of uh, inconsistency in what markets are signaling. And usually equity markets are late in that regard. So equity markets were discounting a positive earnings outcome all the way through the summer of 2008. And the bond markets were signaling the 08 banking stress a year before. So my guess is these things take time because we have a fixed rate economy. So companies financed at low rates, they've got to pay it back, but they're paying it back at, at low rates. And at the same time, they're dealing with rising labor costs. But as they're refinancing debt, at higher rates and at the same time, end demand for their goods is slowing. That's going to flow through it into the P&L. And for some companies, it's going to happen very quickly, as it happened with a couple of apparel manufacturers late this winter. And for other companies, it's going to be slower because it depends upon you know how their debt is structured and, and what their end markets look like. But that's an eventuality that's coming. And the timing of it, I, I just don't know. But what I do know is the market will price it before it happens. That's the way it, right? Because you saw that in September of 08. It was so fast. And I'm not suggesting something of that magnitude, but that's just the way it works. Uh, usually the equity market's caught off sides and then it reacts very, very quickly. But you have to be ready for that before it happens. And we've been ready for some time. Yeah, it feels like we're right in the middle of that going yeah. on with the bond market signaling some pain and equity markets with the head in the sand. Yeah, it's just cognitive dissonance, right? Yep. And as increasingly there's more evidence of let's call it income statement fragility and balance sheet fragility i just find that incrementally there's more people finding reasons to dismiss it i'm not suggesting those reasons aren't valid a you know, strong balance sheet households are strong consumer and and they start to point to other things but i just simply look at the quality of earnings so what always happens as cycles mature is the nominal earnings go up the quality of earnings goes down and you saw that into 2018-19. So if you just look at the differential between what companies say they're earning versus what they are reporting through generally accepted accounting principles, and there's always a difference between the two because there are one-off non-cash charges that as a long-term investor you should ignore, right? But as a cycle ages and that malinvestment starts to accrue, it's, well, ignore this and ignore that and oh, ignore these other three one-time, one-off mistakes that we made too. And I looked at it at the end of 2022 and the dispersion was the highest we've seen um, going back to 2007. So the quality of earnings is, is poor. And that to me is a symptom of just that malinvestment that's accrued and you just need to be thoughtful about that. We make a good case for active management, so thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, for doing this. Appreciate you being here. Love to be here. We'll come back anytime. All right, thank I'm gonna you. hold you to that. All right. <laughs> the world around us is changing and changing in a material way. Specifically for investors, 
What will matter most is how this structurally different operating environment is going to affect profit and loss statements. Now, financial markets are going to have to adjust for that. Lower profit margins with lower multiples is something very different from the last two decades. Strategies that may have worked in the past may not be sufficient over the next 10 years. Thank you very much for listening. And for more, please check out the Strategist Corner podcast on MFS.com or wherever you get your podcasts.